All right. Well, if you would turn to Second uh, Peter as we continue, this is our Christian Life Academy as we continue on the study of Second Peter. Uh, entitled message today: Peter's legacy of truth and hope. Peter's legacy of truth and hope. We'll look at the latter half of chapter one in just a few minutes here. First of all, we'll kind of do a little review. Last week we began our study of Second Peter. And we noted that although initially there was some um, doubt as to the authenticity of this second epistle, you may recall, in fact, when Brian was uh, talking about the various um, background of the scriptures and the canon, that there was a few books that were kind of questionable at first until eventually uh, they came to the conclusion these were genuinely uh, the word of God, and that was the case with Second Peter. But a careful review of the actual book itself will remove those doubts. First of all, the fact that there's a different style of Greek used in Second Peter compared to First Peter uh, can be explained by the fact that Silas, or Silvanus, as he's called in First Peter chapter 5, verse 12, was Peter's amanuensis, or secretary, as they call him, um, in First Peter, whereas Peter himself, or perhaps another secretary, wrote Second Peter, possibly Peter, because it's a little bit, uh, I don't want to say cruder, but maybe rougher Greek than First Peter. And although Second Peter is much shorter than First Peter, uh, their subject matters are quite similar. They cover the same subject. It's probably due to the fact that Peter was writing to the same group of believers that were scattered throughout the northern provinces of Asia Minor. If you look on your maps over there, uh, you'll see that those northern provinces are part of what he's writing to. And he was writing to confirm what he had written to them in the first letter and to kind of anchor them in this truth before his death, which we'll deal with here in a little bit. So as we noted last time, Peter begins with this typical apostolic greeting of grace and peace used by John, used by Paul throughout many of the epistles. But he adds this verb, which literally means to be multiplied, to be multiplied. In other words, perhaps in light of the severe persecution that these uh, saints were enduring, he prays that God will send them ever-increasing supplies of both uh, grace and gospel peace. And this grace and peace uh, will be multiplied to them and to us as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in other words, the closer we get to God, the more in love we are with our Savior, the stronger will be our peace of mind and heart as we face the sinful world, and the greater grace we will have to deal with the challenges that we are faced with. So as we mentioned last time, peace really flows from grace. Peace flows from grace, which is the summary. Grace is a summary of God's mercy of his love, and of his pardon towards us in Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter, one, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3 and verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Uh, so many times, unfortunately, in our day-to-day life and the busyness of our world, we let other things rule our hearts, anxiety, frustrations, um, worries, concerns, we need the peace of God ruling our heart. Why? Because who's in control? God is, right? There's nothing going on in this world that the Lord is not in control of. We need to keep that in mind as we're faced with trials or difficulties, frustrations, whatever it might be. He's still on the throne. He's not worried. He's not frustrated. He's not concerned. He is in control. And we need to have that sense of, of that reality that would give us that peace to know that my God's overall. He's, he's working all things out according to his will. Therefore, we don't need to worry. We don't need to get upset. We just need just to have peace and assurance that he is in control. And 
Peter reminds us in verse 3 of our text here in 1 Peter, it's God's divine power that assures us that his grace and peace will never fail us, and that via that power that he gives us all things necessary, as Peter uses that word, he gives us all things necessary to lead a godly life. We don't have to worry about, well, if only if I get a degree in, in godly life, I can, I can live the life God wants me to be. Or only if I take this you know, course or this uh, program, I can have, lead a godly life. No, God gives us the strength through his Holy Spirit dwelling within us to live that godly life. Here's our manual, okay, and the Holy Spirit's our teacher. So we need to rely on, on that, not on our intellectual ability or our training or whatever experiences we've had. God provides everything that's necessary, Peter says, to lead a godly life. God has called us by his own glory and his power that we might walk in godliness and newness of life and that we might be, quote, as Peter says, partakers of his divine nature in verse 4. Then in verses 5 through 7, if you recall, Peter gives us a list of qualities or Christian virtues that we are to add, he says, to our faith as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord. These are qualities which a believer should have if we would lead a spiritually fruitful life that honors God. Now, we note that we are not to go about adding these virtues in kind of an indifferent, ho-hum, well, I'll take them or leave them kind of way. No, he says to give all diligence. And he uses that word multiple times here in his text. Give all diligence. Make a genuine effort to add these things to your life, to make sure they're part of your life. Both Peter and Paul use these action words. I think it's great to note that as we read the scriptures, look for the, the type of words they're using. And they love to use action words that describe our Christian life and, and not a life of ease, but one that is a, a life of zeal and perseverance. They use phrases like run with patience, giving all diligence, pursue godliness, fight the good fight, etc., which indicate that we as believers are to be actively working on our own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12. Now, these thoughts remind me of the line from that hymn that goes, Must I be carried through the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? No, I must fight if I would win. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the pain, endure the toil, supported by your word. That hymn speaks to us as we're in a battle. We're not to coast along through life thinking all's well and we don't have any problems. No, we're fighting a battle because Satan is doing his best to discourage us, to frustrate us, to keep us from doing what we should be doing, which is living for the glory of God and spreading the gospel. So keep that in mind that we have a responsibility and these, these things are given to us as things we should be doing, but we're always depending upon the grace and the strength and the power of God and the Holy Spirit working within us. <clears throat> And so a brief review of these virtues, just to go over them real quick, begins with a Greek word, which can be translated goodness, but really has much more to do with kind of heroic deeds than just overall goodness. As we grow in grace, we should grow in the boldness, that we should have the boldness of the Spirit for our God. Peter next mentions knowledge, and this isn't just an accumulation of information, but an intimate knowledge of God. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 5.17. The more we know of God, the more our faith increases, and the more our love for him does as well. So it's a progressive growth as we go along. Next, Peter mentions knowledge. Oh, I'm sorry, I mentioned, he mentions knowledge. Knowledge comes as a very important next step to self-control. You really can't have self-control unless you have a godly knowledge of how you should live. Self-control on the negative side involves self-discipline and self-denial. 
resisting the urges of the flesh. On the positive side, it involves channeling our spiritual energies for God's glory. Next, he speaks of perseverance or patience, which is a good companion for self-control. As we've mentioned, it's both very often in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that that term is used of perseverance or patience. For instance, I think we mentioned uh, last time Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews speaks of that patience, patiently enduring. As servants of Christ, we need much grace, much grace to carry on when it's unpopular to be a Christian, and we need to run with patience that race that is set before us, perseverance or patience. That's our challenge. Not to look around us as Peter did there on the, on the Lake of Galilee and began to worry and get frustrated. No, we need to focus on Christ and run with patience looking unto him. That will help us get over those hurdles, get past those frustrations, and help us to focus on, our, on God's will for us. The last three virtues that he mentions, Peter mentions in these verses, begin with godliness, which sounds pretty familiar, uh, sounds like goodness, but it speaks more of living consciously in the presence of God and living reverently, faithfully, and obediently because of it. The last two virtues exhort us to show love for our fellow believers and love for our fellow man in fulfillment of the second great commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. As Peter points out to us in verse 9, if these qualities, if, there's a word, if these qualities are not only evident in our life but abounding, then we shall not be unproductive in serving God, nor in growing in more intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in contrast, those who lack these qualities will become blinded to spiritual truth. They'll lose their assurance of salvation, not lose their salvation, but they'll be very ineffective as a Christian. They'll lose assurance, they'll be frustrated, they'll be kind of blending in with the world because they don't want to be seen as being different. But rather, Peter exhorts us in verses 10 11 to once again be diligent, there's that word, in assuring that your salvation is genuine, that you're called of God and kept by him, and you will have much joy in the realization of your eternal hope in Christ. That's the goal here. We have joy and assurance that we are his because we are seeing these fruits coming forth in our life. God is working in us. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. And as we see these things added to our life, wisdom, knowledge, patience, perseverance, self-control, those are the kind of things that the Spirit should be developing in our life as we yield to him, as we yield to the teaching of his word. So let's read uh, the latter half of the passage here, 2 Peter chapter 1. In verses 12 through 21 first, and then we'll move on and look at the rest of it piece by piece. Peter's considering in this passage, by the way, his approaching death, and therefore he's going to remind the readers here of these Christian virtues that they might keep them after he's gone. So let's read verses 12 through 21. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent or tabernacle, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, or literally my exodus. For we did not follow cunningly divide fables when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory with, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter's concerned for the spiritual well-being of his church, Christ's body, and especially that they might be anchored in the truth. Okay? He wants to be sure we're anchored in the truth. We're not just kind of touching the truth or we have it kind of here and then we put it down. We want to be anchored. We want to be a part of our life. That's what we want to live by. He wants to make sure it's, it's woven into our character. We're guided by the truth, not by the lies around us. Let's look again at verses 12 through 15. We'll focus on what we're going to call a stirring reminder here. This is a stirring reminder by Peter. Look at these verses, verse 12 through 15. For this reason, he's looking back at what he just said in the first 11 verses. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent or tabernacle, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly... I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, or exodus, as the literal Greek word says. So, as one commentator put it, this second letter of Peter's is very much like the book of Deuteronomy, written by Moses. Both are reminders of what God has done and has promised to do. Deuteronomy was a reiteration of the law, okay? It's a repeating of the law reminder for the Jews. When Moses finished it, he gave it to the Levites who were instructed to read it every seventh year at the Feast of Booths. The idea was to remind the people of Israel of the covenant, and Deuteronomy specifically told them how God's covenant people were to be organized and how they were to live. Here, Peter writes from a similar perspective in that he's concerned that these believers in Asia Minor would remember this new covenant of grace and live in accordance with it. Deuteronomy is full of prophecies of Israel's future, while 2 Peter is focused on the future hope of the church, in other words, Christ's second coming. So there's a, a parallel there. But sadly, beloved, let's be honest. Though we of all people, we of all people should not forget what God has done for us and what he requires of us. Yet like Israel, we're in need of constant reminders, lest we go astray from the truth. Thus God has left us his Holy Spirit to work within us, and remind us of all things concerning Christ. He's left us his word. Remind us of his great mercy, love, and grace, as well as his creative power and his wisdom. In that word, in this word, he has left the church ordinances and officers to remind us of our relationship with God, his sacrifice for us, our duty to him. Essentially, like a good pastor, this is what Peter's doing here in this epistle, reminding his readers of the basic principles of the gospel and the present truth, which he's about to relate to them in verses 16 through 21. He's not telling them anything they didn't already know. They, they knew this. But he's leaving them with a written reminder of these things that, all, that they already knew so that they may not lose heart in the midst of severe persecution. Paul has similar designs in reminding his readers, as we see in, for instance, for instance Romans 15, 15, when he says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. And John says similar thoughts in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. 
these apostles are reminding us. They're trying to make sure they're leaving us with a legacy of truth that we can go by as we seek to go uh, forward in our life. Obviously, they're, gonna, they're passing on, but they want to leave us this message or this legacy of truth that we can know how to live for glory of God. Now, we note in these verses 12 through 15 that the word remind, or variations of it, are used three times. Not only that, but we have the ominous reference here to Peter's approaching death. So Peter feels this sense of urgency to remind them of established doctrine, that they might continue to walk in the truth. Calvin put it this way, We are also taught by the example of Peter that the shorter term of life remains in us, the more diligent ought we to be in executing our office. Now, he's primarily referring to Peter's role, pastoral role there, his duty to build up the flock in the faith, which is the responsibility of, of all pastors. But this is similar to his reminders in 1 Peter, particularly in the end of chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So as elders and pastors, Brantz and Brian, myself, face the task of weekly pointing you to the true grace of God, by which you are saved and in which you stand. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> Paul, speaking here to the church at Colossae, gives us a similar thought, the idea of being reminded, of being taught, instructed. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, And as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We're to be rooted and built up in him and established at, uh, just on our own principles, our own designs. No, as you have been taught, as you have been taught from the word of God, that's how you should live. And we should do it with thanksgiving, with praise to God that he has given us this truth to live by. He's not left us guessing as how we should live, but he's given us the principles in his word by which we should live. We're taught by this example, and we are to live according to that example. We're not to ignore it. We're not to put it aside, come up with our own examples. No, we're to use the examples given to us in the Word of God to help us to walk in the truth. So finally, here in this section, we note Peter's reference to Christ's prophecy concerning Peter's death. He refers to his body as a tent or tabernacle. Paul does the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, they look at this in a, in a temporary way. In fact, Simon Kistemacher in his commentary made this interesting point. He said, uh, it's an illustration, it's a really good illustration that they're using, the apostles here, because a house provides a sense of permanence. If you have a house, you think of a permanent living place. But a tent is a temporary dwelling. So we want to look at our life here as not as a permanent dwelling place here on earth. No, we're in a tent, we're in a tabernacle, something that can be put aside when we're taken up with Christ. So that's the picture that they're using here with these words. We don't know exactly when Peter died, although it's speculated that it was probably during the last few years of Nero's reign, uh, probably around A.D. 65 or 67, somewhere in there. Nero himself committed suicide in June of A.D. 68, so somewhere before that is when Peter was put to death. Verse 15 is somewhat cryptic here in that Peter implies that he will provide them with some tool that they can use after his death to remind them of the truths of the gospel. It's speculated by many authors that this refers to Mark's gospel. Uh, Justin Martyr, at about A.D. 150, wrote that he thought the gospel of Mark was the memoirs of Peter. 
Other early church fathers referred to Mark as the interpreter or secretary of Peter, and that he accurately recorded all that Peter remembered of the Lord's words and deeds. So it's possible, but we can't guarantee that. And in, in a true sense, it's not that important that we have to have it down because obviously, as, as Branson has been pointing out as he's going through the survey of the New Testament and the Old, we don't have date stamps on, on each book. Okay, there's no, not a date stamp that says, okay, here's when it was written, bonk, that's it. No, we, have, we can speculate to a certain degree based on information that's given, who was ruling at the time, different things like that, but we don't know the exact date. But we can say that quite likely these are the time periods in which these things happen, and it could very well be that Second Peter was written uh, before Mark wrote his gospel, and that was kind of, again, the summary of Peter's thoughts that he gave to Mark to write and record the gospel. In any case, there's reminders. God gave us these works in the order that he gave them, and they're recorded for us to remind us of these present truths. Let's look on now to a little bit further in our text, verses 16 through 18. We'll look at what Peter describes as his eyewitness, the eyewitness of Peter, the importance of that in the testimony of Scripture. As we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3, false teachers were trying to deceive the people and turn them away from the message of truth that Peter and the apostles were preaching. So Peter offers to, uh, two witnesses here, or proofs, uh, to support his teaching, and with the first being his eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. It's possible that Peter has already been accused of false stories by these um, or fables by these who are seeking to um, put him aside or replace him, you might say, uh, that were arguing against him being a genuine apostle regarding the resurrection of Christ and the second coming. Paul responds to these similar accusations in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6 with a very powerful retort uh, to these who are, are doubting what's going on. In fact, let's turn back to the 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. You'll see what Paul says regarding the same contradiction or, or those trying to uh, contradict what he's saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, there's the present truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, as Peter is saying, this is God's word. This isn't my interpretation. These are facts. This is what happened to me as a witness to the gospel of Christ, and therefore you can believe them. <coughs> Excuse me. The apostles were making up stories, in other words, but were reporting what they both experienced and were taught by the Holy Spirit. Going back to our 
comparison of Peter with Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, Peter Lethard, in his commentary of 1 Peter, writes this, Like Moses, Peter was on the holy mountain, heard the voice of God, saw the Lord's glory pass before him. Because Peter saw Jesus glorified and heard the Father's voice, he says that the prophetic word is made more sure. Now, we might ask, how does the transfiguration relate to Peter's preaching on the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, is Peter referring to Jesus' first coming, to his second coming, or some other event? Well, first, most commentators and Bible scholars would agree that the transfiguration was symbolic in some sense, and that it was a foretaste of what heaven would be like, with Old Testament, New Testament saints conversing with Jesus in all his glory, and the Father declaring his love and approval of his Son. Secondly, though, there's a sense in which Peter is using his presence at the transfiguration as a proof of his authority to declare the power of the gospel, Christ's first coming, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming. So he's, he's using that position that he was there. He can say, I saw him, I saw his glory, I saw his majesty, and I therefore believe he's going to come in glory and majesty again. In fact, the Greek word for coming here in our text is parousia, which means a being near or a return. And depending on your eschatology, that can refer specifically to Christ's return to punish Jerusalem in AD 70, or it can refer to his final return for judgment for the wicked. Also, it must be noted that about a week prior to the transfiguration, as recorded by the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus told his disciples that some of them would not taste of death until they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. That's in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, and Luke chapter 9, verse 27, the Synoptic Gospels. Now, he was referring, Christ was referring to the transfiguration, or was he referring to something else? He couldn't have been referring to his second coming and judgment, for all the disciples would have died. They've died, and he hasn't come yet, so he can't be referring to that. You're going to see me there. He had to be something that would witness in their lifetime. And thus, Peter's point is that since Jesus' prophecy of his coming was at least in part fulfilled, in his transfiguration, that picture of him there, then Peter's claim of his second coming will be confirmed either, as some scholars believe, by his coming in judgment on Jerusalem or before his coming in final judgment at the end of the age. In any case, Jesus' transfiguration had a particular purpose, which was that it confirmed that his prophecy of his own powerful coming within the lifetime of the disciples Peter is relying on this fact for his refutation of these false teachers, that he was there, he heard the words, he saw Christ glorified. Therefore, he's using that as a confirmation that what he's teaching is the truth, and he's refuting these false teachers that say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You didn't see him, you know, you didn't see him rise from the dead. He, you didn't know anything about it. No, I was there. I saw him alive. I saw him in glory, and therefore, I know that what he says is true. And that moves us on to the latter part of the chapter here uh, in verses 19 through 21 which speaks to us of the sure word of God, the sure word of God. Peter's other witness or proof, you might say, of the power and coming of our Lord is found in the Old Testament prophecies, which were all fulfilled in Christ. Let's read verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
the passage here that we've just read has a number of translations suggesting from the Greek, which frankly can be very confusing. So I'll try and keep it simple. Basically, as John MacArthur points out, it would appear that Peter is ranking scripture over personal experience. He's not saying that the eyewitness account of the transfiguration and his hearing God's uh, voice confirming his son's work was insignificant. However, only he, John, and James witnessed that event, and while it certainly confirmed their faith, yet his readers had no witness of that. So he points them to the scriptures as their, as their sure witness. In fact, we have Christ's own words uh, of rebuke to the Jews that testify of the veracity of scriptures in John 5.30, uh, verse 39, I'm sorry, which says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So we have the word of God. Peter's saying, you have the word of God here, which is far more uh, evident, far more sure than just me telling you that I saw Christ at the transfiguration. Yes, that's included in scripture, obviously in the New Testament, but from an Old Testament point of view, he's saying, you have the sure word of God. That's what I want you to rely on. If you don't believe my testimony in, in, a, in a public sense, believe the word of God, because that tells the truth. The word of God is reliable in pointing us both to the reason for Christ's first coming, which was to die for our sins, of course, according to the scriptures, and the sure hope of his second coming. We all do well, beloved, to take heed, as Peter says here, to take heed to God's word as a light that shines into a dark place, including the dark recesses of our soul that still need sanctifying, let's be honest. Okay, we're not perfect. Okay, we're not pure. We will be one day in Christ when we see him face to face, but right now we have dark places that need cleansing. We need the Holy Spirit to root out those dark spots and fill it with light that we might be more like Christ. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and the reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Also Psalm 119 and verse 105, your word, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. We must remember that we once walked in darkness we only stand accepted in God now because he shined the light of his truth into us and drove out our inherent darkness. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 and 2. It should be a familiar passage for those of us who have sung the Messiah. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and the deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Some would like to take the latter part back in our text here in verse 19. Some would like to take it to refer to the second coming of Christ. But that really wouldn't make sense, uh, because due to the fact that it says that the morning star will arise in your heart, Rather, I would agree with Gordon Clark's interpretation that Peter is encouraging his readers here to continue, <coughs> excuse me, to continue to trust in Christ, to look to Christ, uh, to, to let the light shine within you and to drive out that darkness. That morning star uh, is referring to Christ himself. In fact, I think um, we continue to study the prophetic word until its meaning, the fulfillment of Christ dawns on our minds. And this goes with Peter's emphasis on knowledge in the earlier parts of the chapter. In fact, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says this, For God, 
who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, there's that word, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Also, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Peter now gives us a warning here. <clears throat> in verse 20 and 21. Prophecy is not based on human will or someone's med uh, mediating or meditating, I, I guess, on human history, you might say. It's not based on that. It's not based on man's opinion. It's not a science, but it's a gift from God. Therefore, the unveiling or the interpretation of Scripture is not up to man's will, but the Holy Spirit's directive. Peter's reminding his readers of the Holy Spirit's role in Old Testament prophecy and therefore is assuring them that the promises of Christ coming in, in both in redemption and judgment are true. They're not something to be speculated on. They're not something to say, well, maybe that's, you know. No, it's true, he said. You need to realize this. You need to live in the light of it. As John MacArthur points out in his uh, notes, the writers of the Old Testament refer to their writings as the words of God over 3,800 times. Okay? They say, this is the word of God. That's a pretty astounding number that they're constantly referring to themselves, this is the word of God. So we need to take that as truth and live in the light of it, not look at this as a speculative book, as Brian's been pointing out very clearly in CLA before uh, I started teaching here. The word of God can be relied upon, and we need to make sure we have the correct text, of course, to rely upon, but it's a word that we can trust in. It's, it's truth. It is the word of God. Not possibly the word of God or maybe some of the word of God, but it is the true word of God upon which we can rely, upon which we can live. So, one of Satan's tricks, of course, from the very beginning is what? To cast doubt upon the Word of God. And we must be on guard against this lie. One of the reasons we read the scriptures here in our services is that we want to signify the importance of God's Word in our faith. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for instruction. All those things that Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we need to value the Word of God. It is profitable. It is necessary. That's why we include it so much in our services. That's why we preach it, because that's what we need, the Word of God in our life. So let's heed this Word. Let's love this Word. Let's live in the light of this Word. We do not build our lives on cleverly devised fables, as Peter says, but on the Word of the living God, who has, in accordance with His Word, chosen us, redeemed us, sanctify us, and will bring us to glory. That uh, legacy, or I guess you might call it uh, road of salvation, which is spoken of in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, speaks very clearly about him bringing us about to salvation. He's the one who chose us. He, he redeems us. He sanctifies us. He'll take us to glory. <clears throat> we really shouldn't need to be reminded of the value of God's word, beloved. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. And you'll find its light and power, a refreshment to your soul, and a light to your paths. That's something we need to look on, the value of God's word and the importance of it. As Peter's pointing out to his readers here, he's going to depart. They're not to rely on him, but to rely upon the word of God. That's what they need to look to. That's what they need to use as their bulwark, their foundation, their support, their comfort when they're facing with all these tribulations. And we have a hard time today, obviously here in America thus far, uh, conceiving of the kind of persecution that they were going through. I mean, let's face it. In fact, we have a hard time even today, unless we've been there, of what's going on in Ukraine and what the church is enduring there. 
unless you've been there and you've seen it, unless you've been to a place where the church is being severely persecuted, China, how many Christians today are in jail in China? Uh, I know uh, specifically of the early reign covenant church and what they did to that church and, and basically destroying it and throwing all their leaders in jail. Some have come out, but many are still in jail. We don't have a concept of that, but these people do. They were under severe persecution at that time, and Peter's trying to encourage them to keep trusting in the word of God, this present truth which I've given to you. Even after he's gone, he says, the word will still be there. I'm going to leave you a testimony. In fact, he did, the gospel and these books of First and Second Peter. He left that word to encourage and comfort them throughout all the ages that we as the church will have God's word to encourage us to face the trials of life and to endure. So take that to heart and be encouraged by the fact that God is merciful in not only giving us this Holy Spirit to dwell within us, but giving us the word to guide us and direct us. Make it important in your life. I'm sure we're all here because we are making it important to a certain degree, but make it even more important in this new year. Make it something you desire to spend more time in, to meditate upon, to memorize, uh, to be encouraged by, uh, to use it as, a, obviously, an instrument to reach out to those around you. Uh, the catechism questions we have in the bulletin remind us of the principles of that word. And as Brian has been teaching us through the uh, confession, those doctrines remind us of the importance of the word of God in our life and how we should live, how we should conduct ourselves here in the church of God. So be blessed in that God has been merciful to us in giving us his word and his spirit to direct us in his will. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer.